Welcome to your hyperactive, impulsive, inattentive living. Now, it's been years since my guest today and I have had a proper catch up. And the last time we saw each other, neither of us knew much about ADHD. And I'm so glad I've got the opportunity to have a proper natter with him because his high vibes, his ridiculous positive energy is exactly what's needed as the mornings are getting a bit colder and a bit darker. So without too much fuss, I'm gonna let Max take it from here. My name's Max Jervis-Reed. I'm a qualified mental health nurse and social worker. I'm currently a consultant with the National Hopes Programme working to end the long-term segregation of adults who are autistic or have a learning disability. I'm also a parent. I have three wonderful adopted children, one of whom who is autistic and has ADHD. And I also have recognised through parenting him that I have ADHD myself. And we, so we met working in prison in a mental health team. And at the time, neither of us maybe knew or recognised or or did anything about the fact that we both had ADHD. But it all it all seems so obvious now when we talk. Doesn't it? <laughs> I remember we were like the two people in our tiny hotbox office of like 10 people who would always come in and be like, yeah, we've been rock climbing this morning and then we've cycled in and then we'd be in the gym at lunch, running around the prison. And then afterwards we'd be like going for a run and then going to the pub and then trying to write an article until midnight that we wanted published and then back at work. And now I look back and be like, Oh, for goodness sake. <laughs> yeah, of course. Of course, we should have been reflecting on our own mental health whilst working in that mental health team. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, I, I've sort of like read and chatted to people. I think it's quite interesting when I think about like adrenaline seeking or risk seeking behaviours in ADHD, because I think about this a lot in my son. It's like one of my, as a parent, your main worry is probably adrenaline and risk taking behaviour in your children, right? But I actually think, oh, forensic mental health, and the thrill of work and the fast pace and, you know, the adrenaline, I think those are all really attractive. And the more people I've chatted to who are working in services with a diagnosis, I'm like, yeah, I can see how that, that really, you know, got me. Yeah. Because although there was lots and lots of paperwork, it's not a desk job. You're with people. There's very big highs, very big lows. Yeah. So did you know when we worked together that you had ADHD? No. And that's, so I should be really clear. I haven't had a formal diagnosis yet. I've been referred for diagnosis and obviously on this, you know, 10,000 year waiting list. Yep. Um, my, my son does have a formal diagnosis. So no, it's one of those things now where like, I sort of probably just knew I was always different in that way, but like didn't really formalize it, which is absolutely shocking because I was working as a qualified mental health nurse. So, so no, you know, when I sort of started really, you know, when, when I was, you know, working with schools around my son or, you know, working to try to manage social situations for him or things like that. And I was sort of thinking, gosh, yeah, I remember as a child, you know, all the teachers said, oh, it's so bizarre because he wants to please, but he just constantly gets up from his seat and bumps into other children, even though he's such a nice, polite boy. Or, you know, I remember my my parents stopping me having any sugar for periods of time because I was too hyper. And I'm looking back and thinking like, yeah, and I, I've always, I think I really, I really just harnessed the superpower of ADHD as in yeah. like, I have always had 
tons of energy. I've always been able to do three times as much as anybody else. At university, I could have twice as many part-time jobs and I could stay out later and still go to placement. And in work, I've always been able, like we were talking about the way we worked in the prison, I've always been able to live my life like that. And even now, you know, people are like, oh, how'd you do it? And I'm like, oh, but it's great because I can care for three children and have sleepless nights and still go to work and be you know, I, I I love that superpower and I only saw the good bits of it, really. You know, I never thought about the sort of formal diagnosis or any of the parts that were actually challenging to me. I didn't yeah. reflect on that as much in my 20s when we worked together because I just was like, isn't it great that I can do all this and other people can't? I did feel a bit like that, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. And I would say definitely knowing you, you are just this kind of joyful energy, very optimistic very positive and a doer, one of life's doers, you get things done. So are there any bad symptoms for you? Are there any things that like, what were the things that made you think, okay, I need to formalize this because it's not working so well for me? Yeah. I mean, so I, 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 I didn't ever really think I formally have ADHD or should do something about it because I just sort of lived in that way and probably sort of knew it, but didn't really care. The reason... Right. Two things. First, how I sort of decided to formalize it and then the downsides, because there are and I think that's real. And I didn't have insight into them when I was younger. But so, basically, we, my, my son was having a really tricky time and he, he is the, the poster child for ADHD and he is also autistic. He received both diagnoses at the same time. But really, it, it, because he ha has such very, very strong sort of ADHD symptoms. It really masked the autism. And that was something I found quite hard to get my head around that I hadn't realized as his parent and also a professional working in the area. <laughs> um, but but so uh, we, we sort of, he was being referred in on the formal pathway for sort of ADHD assessment. And when you do all the screening tools, I because I know the screening tools because I do them for work, I was I couldn't believe how high he was scoring on the autistic ones. And I sort of made my my husband do it separately on the other sofa. I was like, I think I'm a bit in my own head or being a bit weird about this. Like maybe it's, you know, my parent brain on this. Could you do this separately? And he was like, this is the score I've come out with. And I was like, oh my God. Anyway, so we watched, uh, did you see, you know, Paddy McGuinness and his wife did a documentary. Because their children um, are autistic, aren't they? Or his wife, yeah. Yeah, so all three of his children are autistic. And through parenting them, his wife realized that she was autistic. And obviously there's very little medical sort of research into autistic women and how it presents really differently. And masking is a very, very sort of, you know, real thing. Anyway, so we watched this documentary. For me, it was a bit of a busman's holiday because I work in this area, but my partner was absolutely sobbing his little eyes out on the sofa and was really moved by it because we were having quite a tricky time. He cries like anything, he's he's cried at a NatWest NatWest advert before, so it's like you know he is is pretty um, unstable about these things. But at the end of the documentary, I sort of said, "Do you know what, Matthew? I um, I went like I've always wondered if I've had ADHD." And actually, so one of the powerful things that Christine McGuinness said at the end of the documentary was, "Now I've got a diagnosis of being autistic. I can say to my children, yes, you're autistic, but so is Mummy. Mummy has a husband." Mummy has a job. Mummy has friends. Mummy has a good life, you know. And I thought, oh, if my son's the only one in our family with a sort of neurodivergent diagnosis, if I meet the threshold for that criteria, I would like to be able to say, me too. And I do say to him, me too, all the time. And we reflect on when we've got our busy brains or we're feeling fizzy or we're doing too much. And my other children will say, you're doing too much again. Like, it's really empowering. It's really great. Um, 
Anyway, so I turned to Matthew and I said, I've always wondered about, you know, if I have the threshold, maybe I should look into it. And he turned to me and he said, I thought we both knew you had ADHD and we just weren't talking about it. And I, I was like, we've been married for 10 years and you've just always thought I had ADHD. I didn't really know if I did. And he was like, just to be clear, you definitely do. Yeah. yeah. And and he's like a, a um, medical so that professional was, yeah. as well, isn't he? He's He works in the medical field. He's, a, he's a physical health nurse. Yeah. yeah. He's a physical health nurse. And we have a fantastic 10-year joke of him being like, Oh, you're being really ADHD. You're doing too much. You're expecting too much of all of us. This is exhausting. And me being like, what the problem is here is that you're lazy. That's that's the actual problem. That's your diagnosis, pal. Oh, yeah. wow. I, I had exactly the same conversation with Ash, my boyfriend, this weekend, where, we, as you said, we're about to start renovating this big house. He is working on lots of his own side hustles. And I said to him, we need to address this before we start the renovation because my perception of your effort with things sometimes is perhaps not the going all in that I would like to see. I would, I, I, I don't see commitment unless it's 110% and you're working till two in the morning and you're not getting any sleep and you're eat, sleeping, drinking this project, this renovation. And he was like, Angela, that's your brain and that's okay for you, but that's not healthy really, is it? And that's not how I want to live. And I've had to really accept that it's, this it's is not also, laziness. It's also okay to not be healthy for others. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Sorry, we've got, we did the same. So we moved to the countryside last year and bought a house that had sat empty. It was absolutely beautiful and incredible. We'd never be able to afford it if it wasn't an absolute ruin. It's on a third of an acre, exactly where I want my children to grow up, especially my son who is up at half five and likes to be out in, walking at that time and you know all that sort of stuff and but it had sat empty for some years it had no electricity and no water like it was and so we moved our three children there and it was very unfortunate that we exchanged on the property so we were locked in and couldn't get out of it the day before my son received his diagnosis and so we're there we were like ah so we are moving an adopted autistic child we are gonna uproot absolutely everything in his life and then once we get into this absolute rundown shithole we are then going to physically move the walls around him fantastic and lo and behold we had a huge family crisis and you know it was exactly that my partner found it incredibly hard because we we had to essentially really live out of one room for a period of time we had just a camping stove for the summer holidays we were going swimming instead of having showers for a couple of weeks like it was and for me it, with with my brain, I just get on and I do it, and I don't I don't really feel tiredness until it's complete exhaustion. Then I just lie down for a bit, and then get back up and carry on. And you know, he found it really hard. And I think it's incredible that you've clearly done the work to be able to reflect and have that conversation that you might come at it from different ways. Because I was like, yeah, this is hell. Like, isn't this awful? Let's get through it. Whereas Matthew was like, no, I need to lie down now. Like, I can't. I can't carry on. Yeah, yeah. There's. There's just so much, yeah, where there's constant going and these constant projects and filling your life with very busy, stressful things. So not only is your job incredibly stressful, you have, yeah, adopted children and you have decided on a renovation project. And I remember when we met, you were going through the, the adoption process. How has it been adding what looks to me, like more chaos into your life, but seems to be really 
positive for you? How has it been doing that? So I've just, I'll just say, I won't talk too much about work just because to talk publicly about the work I'm doing, I have to sort of get approval. So I won't go in, in depth with that, but hopefully one day I will be able to. And, and actually that's interesting because that circles back to the question that I didn't finish answering really, sorry, because I went on a tangent, obviously. Having children has allowed me to sort of like live at my baseline level of energy and mania in a really socially acceptable way. You know, in parenting culture, everyone's exhausted, right? And everyone's comparing their sleepless nights and how much they're doing. And oh, it's relentless. I've been up since this time and I can't have a moment to do it. But that was my life before by choice. That was the life that I created for myself through exercise, through work, through trying to publish things on the side, through volunteering, through having a wild social life. Like that's, you know, living on a canal boat. Like I look at all the things I did and I'm like, what? like, I've always been this busy and tired. It's just now it's in a really acceptable form that everyone goes like, oh, wow, that's so amazing. You're such a good dad. But that, you know, that is just me. And also sometimes it's it's driven by me. Like sometimes <laughs> my partner is like, no, we're putting on a film and everyone's sitting down. You will not take them to the park again. <laughs> that is for you, not them. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's wonderful. And I think, I think it's a superpower. I think it does make me a really good parent. I get up at this morning was 5.15 with my son and we have an indoor sensory swing and an indoor trampoline. And, you know, I can do lots because of my energy levels, which is wonderful. But I think, I think I, if I look at sort of like the negative symptoms that like you asked before, and I look back to before I really had insight into sort of having ADHD, one of the things that I have always hated about myself is talking too much, being too much, interrupting people. And I think the being too much comes from being a loud kid at school, being confident, be, you know, all those, all those, you know, think like I wasn't, I don't think I'd be described as disruptive, but I think I would be described as a character, you know, and like larger than life and all those sort of polite ways of being like, he's borderline a little shit, but he's just pulling it back. We are allowed to swear on this podcast. Right? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And you can absolutely. interrupt me whenever you want to as okay. well, because it's two ADHD people talking. <laughs> But when I look back to, like, honestly, when I look back to working at the prison now, I think, oh, you know, if I talked over somebody in a meeting, I would feel terrible about it afterwards. And I would really have anxiety afterwards or think like, why do you think so much of yourself? Why do you, why did you need to say that? Why couldn't that just wait? Because I don't know about you, but for me, that's really well-intentioned. I'm like, I've got this information I'm thinking about. I'm trying to connect the dots. I'm trying to help. But actually it comes across as rudeness and drowns out quieter voices that are really, really powerful and important, sometimes more so than my loud voice. And then especially massively like now being a, a consultant, reflecting on being a white male in a leadership position in diverse teams, it is so important that I don't interrupt or talk over people or drown out people with less privileged, you know, positions or, you know, like, you know, the, the less privileged than I have. That for me is something that I have like recognized, you know what, there's downsides to this energy max that you didn't have insight into. And so th things like now, when I deliver training to like sort of large teams or when I present at conferences or do teaching, cause I lecture as well. And all these side hustles that you mentioned, I would never do those without having done a significant amount of exercise first, because I know if I've gone for a 15k run, I'm not going to get up to go to the toilet or have a snack or refill the water every three minutes and disjoint the conversation. And I know I'm not going to interrupt and talk over people. I'm going to be able to sit there and facilitate 
reflective training, which is what I want to do, not just talk at people. So I, I think the children have been wonderful for that because actually it does mean that I'm up at 5.15 and working for a good three to four hours every day before work. And that actually makes me sort of, I think, get to an equilibrium that's that's good for me. Um, because if I didn't do that, I'd, I'd be doing something else anyway. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's so, so interesting that I have always, I think, been searching for these ways to channel my energy and when you said about you and I were the people who would like do a 15K run before work and then cycle to work, that I've used sport for that before. I've then, yeah, I blew up my life and moved abroad. And I know that you've traveled as well. So I think it's finding the things to channel it into so you can see the positivity of it is probably the best. Absolutely. Way to do it. Yeah. And I think. I think I'm sort of like still learning about how to do that more and more and only really recognizing, like we bought the house last year. Last year was the big renovation project. I didn't have insight that that's what I was doing again. I just, I, and it obviously was intention to have a wonderful family home for life for my children to grow up, but I didn't recognize, okay, so you're definitely not having any more babies because you're absolutely a breaking point with three. Like you can't have any more. Well, you say you can't have any more and then you manage to get yourself a dog as um, well. Dog, cats, guinea pigs, fish. It's, it's like ridiculously ticks box. Like I said to my mum the other day, cause she came to visit, she was like, wow, you've gone to town on getting cuttings and growing plants now. And I was like, I now have enough insight to know that I had as many children as I could until I hit breaking point. And then I had as many pets as I could until I hit breaking point. And now I'm onto plants and I'm obsessed with, with, you know, like having tons of plants and like, I, I I'm getting there with the insight. But, but yeah, so sorry, what was, I can't remember what my point was going to be now. Just about, no, I suppose about channeling your energy in productive ways or channeling it in positive ways. That was it. And that's something I think about a lot for my child because he's very lucky. He's growing up with a loving family and well, not lucky. He's got what everybody should have, but a loving family who see the best in him are really committed to, to doing everything they can for him. And when I, you know, if we look back and think of the people who came into prison with, with that diagnosis, Ange, like they didn't have those things, you know, they absolutely set up to fail, I would say throughout their entire lives. But, but I watch him and I think uh, like he loves risk-taking behaviors and we've had some dangerous things happen that terrify me and keep me awake at night or, you know, it's it sort of that thrill seeking that adrenaline I see it in his eyes and I can empathize with it but sort of certain things so he's he's now funded for a one-to-one -one to be able to sort of take part in other activities that, that anybody else would be able to quite rightfully so and he started doing a drama club and I thought oh like this is never gonna work like I was like how is he gonna you know follow direction to stay in one place and learn lines and say lines and you know keep a costume on and not fit with it or wear you know because he's got quite a lot of sensory needs as well and stuff and then, and I, I was his one-to-one -one for the play. They had a, they did a play. So he did the whole drama club for a whole term and they just did a play at the end of the term last month. And, and I, I was his like one-to-one -one for the play because I didn't trust anyone else. Um, and I couldn't believe it. I was watching him on stage and I was, because I used to do like drama clubs when I was a kid. And I was like, <gasps> he's in position. He's following the instructions and the lines from memory. He's got his costume on. And I saw the glint in his eye and I was like, Hold on a second, Max. Remember that you have probably had ADHD your whole life as well. You loved the thrill and the buzz and the adrenaline and the fear of going on stage and will everything happen right? And it's a live performance. And I looked at the glint in his eye and I thought, oh, I'm channeling it right. Like, this is great. And he, he loved it. And I was like, oh, we need to build on this for him because, um, you know, that, that's fantastic. Like, 
I mean, I, I'll be completely honest. My main worry is he's going to absolutely love illicit drugs one day because of the buzz, or he's going to love really risky sex, or he's going to love driving really fast or with a not wearing a seatbelt or things like that to get his buzz. And I was like, this is how my parents didn't have the knowledge about ADHD or the knowledge about me, but I do about him and me. And this is how I can channel it. And I'm le learning more and more about me within that as well. So last year, I really pushed myself to breaking point. I got ill at the end of last year and I did try January purely because I just couldn't shake this illness and I was knackered. And my energy returned, which my energy is my superpower. And when it went at the end of last year, I was like, oh no, I've built a life based on ADHD energy. I can't stop having it because everything will fall down and collapse. But actually I recognized my energy returned and I was like, hold on, like I'm drinking for that buzz, for that thrill. I'm not an alcoholic or a, I don't think I'm even really a problem drinker, but actually I don't care very much about having one or two drinks. I like a few drinks. I like the buzz. I like yeah. the little adrenalines, but I like the cheeky notice. I can't afford to do that getting up at 5.15. My children don't sleep through the night. I've got a job I'm extremely passionate about. I would rather be doing my DIY or my exercise. And I'd stopped all exercise last year because of the renovation project, because <laughs> my son was needing quite a high level of support last year when we got, you know, while we were getting things sort of properly in place for him. And I haven't started again. And I've recognized I haven't drunk alcohol now for like eight months. And I'm like, oh, I've done a triathlon again this year. I've signed up for my first ultra marathon next year because I'm I'm channeling all, all, all of my energy in those positive ways again. And by signing up to it, because I, I won't keep it up myself. If I sign up to an event and I pay for it, there's no way I'm not doing it. I'm a very goal-orientated person. So I specifically signed up for a triathlon in September because I knew it would make me swim, cycle and run once a week, even if it was 9 p.m., because I had to. And that is important for my mental health when I have relentless summer summer, you know, your holiday childcare, like channeling my energy in those ways and trying to channel my sons in those ways. I just think, yeah, I, I feel really lucky that he has come along to teach me these things about myself. Because I think the thing I find is I'll get that kind of 7pm itchiness, that kind of, oh, there's a good few hours of the evening ahead. Oh, I can't go to bed because I never bloody sleep. What do I do? And I can fill that with anything. I can fill that with really destructive things like just drinking three bottles of wine, or I can fill that with going for a run, doing the gardening, focusing on building a website. It, it kind of doesn't matter what the thing is, but if I've not put a productive or healthy thing there, the easiest thing to do is the unhealthy thing, right? To get that feeling. And uh, yeah, that's taken me a lot of learning about myself. And if it's not a healthy, productive thing, like, you know, before I didn't really care, but now I've got little people relying on me. I'm like, I could use that time to be building our life better, you know? And that's not like completely 24 seven selflessness. Like I like the things as well, the projects as well, right? Yeah, it's just, it's just an interesting learning process. And I'm not at the end of the learning. I think, you know, I'm not gonna not drink forever, but I, I now recognize that I was buzz seeking, you know? Like yeah. it's just, yeah, ongoing learning. I spoke, I interviewed a guy last week, a guy called Tom, who is now in recovery, but he's like super successful entrepreneur, earns millions of pounds, but he's in recovery. And we talked about, it's easier for me to just say, I'm not going to drink for six months than just have one or two glasses of wine. My brain is so all or nothing. If I give myself the rule to not drink, that's really easy. But if I give myself any freedom to say like, oh, of course you can, you can have a couple of glasses if you want. It goes, the wheels come off. My life goes to chaos. 
is it is it like that with you? Are you like you have to? Yeah. Yeah, I'm totally the same. I hadn't actually even realised it really until you said it because when the summer holidays started, went camping, I thought, oh, I've not drunk for six months. That's great. I've really got everything back on track. I'll have a drink. And I had a drink and I was like, do you know what? I don't fancy it. Like, I'm not that fussed by the taste of alcohol. I try, I can't drink very much anyway because I'll be up at 5.15 tomorrow. Like, I I, I don't, I, I am very all, I was like, no, I don't drink at all. Like at the moment, you know, I am very all nothing. And actually like, I think it's, I think it is great because I love it when people are like, you know, I'll, I'll own how shallow I am. Like when people are like, wow, how on earth are you doing triathlon and you do all this? And I'm like, oh, you know, superhero, superpower energy. I don't say that, obviously, but I secretly love that. I see it as a compliment when people say that, you know, I don't know how you do it, which is probably it's such a negative culture that puts pressure on like, I very much identify as a mum because I'm a primary carer, you know, like it's, you know, and, and sort of like the pressure on mums is so unfair. So I secretly love like that 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 is like a great compliment thing. But I also hate that I can't just be someone who would like, oh, I could just run, you know, I could just go for a nice run and balance that. I have to sign up to a triathlon. And then I have to think, actually, I could do an ultra marathon. Like that's the next thing because I, I can't train to do a marathon like I did before kids because I haven't got the time. And also... I'm like now mid to late thirties. Like I'm not fussed about beating times and doing better, but actually now I've joined this like running group and ultramarathon is, well, you probably know this because you've done loads of amazing things. I didn't know that ultramarathon is like much more a mental endurance test. And it's like beautiful trail runs in nature and like camaraderie with the people you're running with. And I'm like, oh yes, sign me up for all of that. So that's, that's my new thing for the 4th of May next year, my first one of those. But I am also like, I could have just gone for a nice half an hour run once, twice a week. No, Max has got to sign up for the massive goal. And, you know, that is, it's, it's great, but it's also a little frustrating, probably also for people around me or certainly those who are married to me. <laughs> Do you ever get burnt out? Because it sounds like your energy is constant, whereas mine will be six months of huge high energy, then a huge, huge crash and dip of energy. Do, do you get that? No. And I listened to one of your other podcasts. I will listen to them all. I just, I'm time poor. Sorry. But I heard you saying that and I thought about, I thought, oh, that's interesting. I can't identify a time that I've become burnt out. And I don't know about you, like in our careers, but I've been told this every job I've had, right? Because I've done a few extreme ones. They're like, oh, you, you can't work at this level. You're going to burn out. People used to say that to me all the time when we worked in prison. I don't think I've ever burnt out. I used to, I used to joke that maybe I was bipolar and I was just like on this huge high and one day the huge low would come, which is probably a very un-PC joke. Apologies. I used, used to say that when I was younger. I know better now. But no, I don't. I mean, I have, I think last year was, 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 Last year, I learned a lesson that I pushed it too far purely, you know, because because my son's needs were unpredictable and you can't recognize when those will peak and trough. That that was incredibly hard because we'd lined up. I'd lined up taking on the consultant job and doing the renovation and moving my whole family. And those coincided with a huge period of need for my son. I will never be I'll never make that mistake again. I'll never use up so much resource that I don't have the emergency resources, you know, to, 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 to be present for him. Cause I had to take unpaid leave from work and I had to stay up until 2am every night, like, and get four hours sleep as opposed to six. Like it, you know, it wasn't a good way of doing it. And I probably certainly could have been a better professional and a better parent and a better partner. And I, lo and behold, I got physically ill at the end of that year, you know, which I suppose, would I consider that burnout? Maybe. I mean, it made me stop. It made me rest. It made me stop drinking and, you know, has led on to like what I would say, like a much healthier way of doing things. 
So I suppose maybe some people would consider that burnout. I don't think it's because my energy's never stopped. I, th- I suppose for me, I would burnout's probably quite a personal thing. If I was burnt out, I wouldn't be doing the things that I love. I would. I mean, the number one thing for me if I burnt out is that I would think I was being a crap parent, and I don't think I've ever compromised on the quality of my parenting. I've compromised everything else in my life to maintain my parenting. Yeah. So I, you know, I did stop all exercise last year. So I did stop some of the things I loved, I suppose. But yeah, it's probably how you measure it. So I, I don't have those big peaks and troughs. I get, you know, and I, I am learning about how to pace things out. So like I planned the triathlon for September, the ultramarathon for May. I've got like a, a, a smaller race in November to like, to make sure that I'm doing consistent exercise as opposed to massive spikes of summer and then winter nothing. Because I suppose I know that is how I would work. So I, I suppose my answer would be no. I don't think I, I do have massive periods of burnout. But then I had kids quite young, you know, like I was 29 when we stopped working together. I remember this process because they, when you were having all your interviews to be an adoptive parent, I think they said, oh my God, you're so young to be adopting children. And I remember you getting quite stressed about this and saying, I'm not young, I can do this. But that was, I think that was something, a really young age to adopt. And it was a big deal at the time, I remember. You're right. And actually, you know, they were. I remember that because it did frustrate me. I think it was. So my partner's 15 years older than me. So we sort of met in the middle, but he didn't want to be too old. He was early 40s and I was like just turning 30. And it did frustrate me because I think if you were a biological couple, obviously you could have a baby then. But I also was really frustrated that I was a qualified mental health nurse and social worker working in a really demanding job. And they were like, are you emotionally mature enough for this? And I was, you know, married and had had quite a I think, you know, a full life that I had reflected on. And if I was five or 10 years older and working in marketing and doing none of the self-work, they probably wouldn't have asked those questions. I still think that is true. But they did say I was the youngest adopter they'd had. And I now look back, you know, at the time when you're ready for things. And if you if you want something like to be a parent, it is in your bones, right? It's not, it's not rational. It's from the heart. And now I look back and think, my God, that was young. <laughs> like, you know, it was. But they also commented on my energy a lot. And I, I remember them saying, is this going to be sustainable? Are you going to burn out? Are you going to crash? I hadn't actually thought about that until you asked. Because I, you know, because you knew me then during, and you knew me because I had to go from work to the interviews and then come back to work. So it was probably very fresh in my mind. But actually what they probably saw was, oh, this person's super duper keen. Like he doesn't know what it's like to be a parent. He doesn't know he's not going to crash and burn. And I've seen people crash and burn. I've had friends who've adopted, you know, I'm in all these wonderful support circles. I've had friends who've been medicated for depression and, you know, crashing and burning out after adopting children. It's very real. You know, it's a huge mental and physical process for somebody. Yeah, you're right. But it was sustainable. And we went back, (laughs) we went back again for another one. And and you've you've kept that energy going. And is being a parent wonderful then? Is it everything you dreamed and more or is it as stressful as I imagine it to be? It's everything I dreamed and more and it's as stressful as you imagined it to be. Yeah, it's, I feel very lucky because I think and I know people who've had children and it it's insanely hard work and you can't understand how hard work it is before you do it, right? I thought I was prepared and knew what it was going to be like and we had all the benefits of all, you know, wonderful training and everything to support us, you know, through the adoption services. You know, you, you, I, I just remember thinking like, is it, is this real that people spend this much time in their houses? Like my washing machine's going to break. Like surely no one else in the world does this much laundry. It's just so alien. I mean, I did have two children at once. Um, 
so yeah, you know, you, you can't sort of prepare yourself for it. But I know people who have been like, this isn't actually what I thought it would be. And I want to go back to work full time. And that's what I mean about like the pressure on mums to feel and be a certain way. Like you go and have a fantastic job and be a wonderful role model and earn for your family. That is wonderful, you know, as well as the other stuff. Because I... I am lucky that it, I adore it and I, I don't mind chaos and I don't mind being manic on little sleep. And I just absolutely love it. And I genuinely get the joy out of all the activities. And because of all that, I can do things that I still really love. Like after we do this, I'm going kayaking on a reservoir with all three of my kids and my dog because we can, because I love it. And there, you know, we have, we have a pattern that we're able to, but that is down to a genuine love. You can't, you can't fake that. So I feel really lucky with that. And I feel for people who don't have that because there is a lot of pressure to only be one way as a parent. And that is that you are Mary Poppins and you love it. And I get so much positive praise for that, which, as I've said, I absolutely love positive praise. Don't worry. But I also think I get tons of it because I'm a man and I don't see women, you know, genuinely in the summer holidays, especially when the children were younger, people on buses would turn to me and be like, wow, this is incredible. And I think there's a mum two rows in front of me doing the same thing, but you don't say it to her because that's what you expect of her. But there was also a flip side. Sorry, I'm going on tangents. No, it's People great. to try and help me when I didn't want it or need it. They used to like, like I, I remember, it, and it, honestly, I used to track it. And in the summer holidays, before my children were summer holiday age, like for school age, I think people thought, oh, look, it's a dad taking his kids out for the day. Bless him, he doesn't know what he's doing. I remember this one time I was getting off a bus with my double buggy and I was like, Jimmy, and it's a right faff, right? But I, it's a right faff every time I knew what I was doing. And this woman huffed and said, oh, come here, let me help. And took my son off me. I didn't have an understanding of his needs at the time. He was insanely overly attached and howled if he was ever taken away from me. He started screaming and howling when she took him out the buggy. And then because he was screaming and howling, she put him on the pavement and he wasn't wearing shoes because he always took them off and lobbed them. Um, and it was raining and she put him on a wet pavement in socks. And I looked at her and I was like, you have unsolicited, not asked for my consent, taken my child out of my buggy because you thought you knew better. And now you've made things way worse. He's standing howling on a pavement in wet socks. Like I genuinely, I, like I was like, you, how dare you? I don't believe another woman would have done that to another woman. And... There was another time that a, a woman, it was with my third child, and she, I, I knew this woman well and I like her. She tried to help me with his nappy and I didn't say anything. I was like, okay, but I was like, you've got two children. I've got three. I know how to do a fucking nappy. I don't believe you would do this to a woman. It's just really interesting. Like I get so much positive praise, but also I do think there's like, you know, some funny sort of like ignorance around that. What I'm trying to say is that clearly I'm the discriminated victim here and <laughs> woe, woe is me. <laughs> it's, it's interesting when you say like, you're going to go kayaking with the kids after this. It sounds like you are really trying to build a life that is perfect and wonderful for your children. This is what you see as the best way to raise them. So out of London, out of the city, into nature a little bit more. How important is that for you and managing your mental health and your neuro conditions, is that vital for you or is that something only important for the children? No, it's vital for me. I've always been that way, getting out outdoors. You know, 
absolutely. And sort of that level of exercise. I, yeah, I think with the children, like number one, I do think that's incredibly important for children to be outdoors, to be active, to be, you know, I sort of reflect, I think like my children are very, very attached to me and have had a different life story. So they don't do, they don't like to go to clubs. They wouldn't go to an outdoor club. They wouldn't, you know, that sort of stuff. They wouldn't go to a kayaking club as much as I would love them to. The pressure's on me to do that if I want them to. I think I'm, I think probably 50% lucky and 50% it's that way because I've made it that way. So I think children do tend to like what they're used to and like what their parents like, right? So it's my children's norm that we're out and doing things all day and really active and do things like going kayaking or next week we leave for our fourth camping trip of the summer. Like they're used to that. I think they probably love it because they, because they are that way inclined. They probably genuinely do love it. And also because it's their norm. Like my daughter absolutely loves the screen like if I put a screen on she will chill in front of it for three hours like she would happily not move my boys won't do that so I'm I'm like you know yeah I'm like it's partially the way I've made things and partially probably them but it's incredibly important to me and I, I, I especially when they were young I found it hard in the winter months like staying in all day I used to relentlessly go to like stay and play I used to have a routine that I drew up for myself of all the stay and plays and library sessions and things that we could go to because I cannot stay in all day like it's um it really does mean, and that is how sort of I, I sort of why exercise is really important to me as a parent, because, you know, when Matthew gets home from work, I, I, you know, I'll put the kids to bed and I'm like, I have got to go swimming. I've got to go for a run because it's too easy to not, especially in the busy summer holidays. I've got to get the laundry on. I've got to tidy the house. I've got to get the kayaking stuff ready for the next day. I could be like, oh, I'll just do that. And I won't go, but I need to get out. I need to do my exercise. Like I have to. And because I, you know, because you can get, I can cut corners and get sloppy about that because I justify like, oh, I've got to get the things ready for the kids. But then actually I won't be as good a parent the next day, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I think the reason I was asking you about this is I remember, so when I used to run group therapy on the substance misuse wing in prison and we would talk about how do you build a life where you stop smoking crack? And they would, the the men would ask me like, Ange, what, what do you do? Because because I think real life's boring. And I would say, well, I run up mountains, like I climb up mountains. I like, I do 50 mile trail runs. And that was the thing I kind of said to the guys in prison, do this thing for your dopamine instead of smoking crack. And the reason I'm interested in asking you about this is because when I worked in prison, I don't think I ever once did a referral for an ADHD assessment. I don't think we talked about it. I don't ever recall it being mentioned. And I wanted to make sure my memory was correct with that or that it wasn't just me being a terrible mental health team worker. So what's your recollection of that? I vividly remember you having those conversations because I used to refer people to your group therapy and I always, yeah, it's so good to hear it again because I think it's so powerful and I think you're really inspirational. My memory is the same as yours and you're not going mad in a different way. When my son's needs started to escalate and I thought that he only had ADHD and I didn't know sort of anything more about him, I remember thinking, I genuinely remember having this thought thinking, this is disabling for him. He can't be with his friends. He can't do any activities. He can't really do school. Our family life is dominated by what we think is ADHD. And it, you know, it, it was those symptoms it, predominantly. It, obviously he was autistic as well. But I remember thinking, 
I've never paid that much attention to ADHD. I never really massively thought about it as a mental health nurse. I would have thought, oh yeah, like they'll have more energy. I didn't think about anything else. And I remember, and I'm really, you know, I'll own that I am ashamed of this. But if when we got referrals, right, in prison, in that tiny office we used to work in, obviously those people had tons of trauma and usually loads of query diagnoses or lots of different things going on in their life. I would, ADHD was at the bottom of my list of concerns. I would always look for psychotic disorders. I would look for suicide risk. You know, I would look for what their crime was and how potentially they would struggle in prison in relation to that if it was very stigmatized crime, you know, all those things. I wouldn't bat an eyelid at ADHD. I wouldn't really think about it. And now, knowing what I know about my son and about myself, thinking, wow, that diagnosis and locked in a box at the boiling hot top floor of G-Wing, like torture. And we didn't, I did not prioritize that at all. And I certainly never did a referral in, no, in prison either. Yeah. And I really, I, I hope that like, I'm sure it's my development. I, I think it's also the systems learning and development that, you know, I hope if we were doing that job now, or I hope the people doing that job now do do that differently because it doesn't sit right with me at all. And I think it's really one of those hidden triggers because it's really complicated, isn't it? You know, the, I read a lot into the overlap of trauma and autism and ADHD symptoms or, um, you know, like use of illicit drugs and the overlap and, and things like that. And it's really muddy and it's really unclear. But I think for that reason, ADHD symptoms can be really lost and therefore never treated. And they're, they're absolutely fundamental to having a good full life, whatever that means. Like the example you started off the question with about having a life where you don't smoke crack, right? Um, what, and I, I think I've really, really, I genuinely don't think I would have been successful in getting my current role if I didn't have my son and didn't speak about my home life and the impact that he's had on my professional working. And I'm so, so grateful to him for that. Genuinely, I feel so, so lucky that the world brought us together and I got to be his parent. But I'm working with somebody at the moment who has been in long-term segregation for solitary confinement in mental health services for a very long time. And through working with his family and understanding how he grew up and how his family cared for him, I thought to myself, they're doing everything that I do for my son. And I could see that ADHD had been queried, but it was very hard to tell when somebody has lots of other diagnoses and is in solitary confinement in, in hospital. And there's loads of other factors that you can never be clear. But it gave me the confidence to push to say, we haven't looked at this closely enough. We haven't looked at this closely enough. What, you know, are we looking at these factors? What about this? And through meaningful activity and working with this person, I was able to compile more evidence that led onto being proportionate for a trial of ADHD medication that has drastically reduced impulsivity and, you know, distress and, and, and aggression and massively held. And genuinely, that is because of my son. That is because I you know, that, that, that I identified those needs because of my parenting role. And I'm so, so grateful to my son for that. And I was talking to somebody about it the other day. I mentioned before we started recording, I work with this incredible woman called Alexis Quinn, who is the program manager of the Restraint Reduction Network, which is a fantastic charity. And she talks publicly about that she has been in hospitals and in solitary confinement for periods of time. Um, but I was talking about how sort of like, oh, transference and like assuming it was a bad thing because in mental health services, we're, we're told to like be careful about, you know, transference and letting any sort of, of that cloud our clinical judgment. And she was like, I think transference can be a fantastic thing. You know, I think if you're able to think of somebody that is in services or in the system, 
in a way like with, with with the care and the focus and the priority and the the love of a family member i think that's a fantastic use of transference and it gets better results for people thank you for sharing that that's it's fascinating i can't wait until you can speak more publicly in the future about the work you're doing because it is just fascinating and now i'm learning more about adhd i interviewed daily right at the start of making the podcast and he's a met detective and daily has not only said what you said he said lots of police officers themselves have adhd because it's a high dopamine high energy not a desk job but he has been piloting a study to screen for adhd upon arrest and this just makes so much sense to me now where i think about the people we worked with in prison with risk-taking behavior, with illicit drug use, with needing more energy, with getting kicked out of school and going into pupil referral units and that pipeline from that into the prison. It just makes sense that looking at ADHD is kind of a no-brainer for mental health services, for our criminal justice system, for all of this together. And it shows with the example you gave there, the impact it can have if we do look at these things and find the right ways to manage them, treat them, I don't know which vocabulary you want to use, but but support people to live their most fulfilled life with the brain that they have, I think. Absolutely. Empowering them, 100%. Max, I really want to keep talking to you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull the podcast itself to an end. But as someone who's very, very positive about their own ADHD, but someone who's also a mental health trained professional and a parent of someone with ADHD. Do you have any words of wisdom, any advice you can share with everyone? Well, you told me that you'd ask that at the end. And because I suffer with imposter syndrome, I found a clever way around it. Um, so I'm going to, I'll, I'm going to, climb on my pedestal and get preachy at the end of the podcast, if you don't mind. But I asked my young child, I said, I'm going to do a podcast about ADHD. And because he, he knows I listen to podcasts. He was like, what? You're going to talk on one? It'll be your voice. And I was like, yeah. And I'm going to talk about my ADHD and yours and how I learned about mine through you. And that I'm grateful to you for that. And, and, um, and I said to him, do you have any words of wisdom? Like, what would be your advice to other people learning about their ADHD or what helps you? And he said to me, I said, what, you know, what, I said, what advice would you give or anything like that? And he said, I'm reading now, direct quote, it's really difficult to be ADHD because you get worked up all the time and you feel fizzy most of the time. And I was like, oh, okay. And I sort of was like, that's quite negative, isn't it? <laughs> and I'd wanted, you know, to, I'd wanted him to be really inspirational. And I, I tried a few times and I went back a couple of times and said, you know, it, you're amazing now, aren't you? With your learning about ADHD, like, you know, for example, we went to a wedding yesterday and we were in the ceremony and he was like, it's too much. I need some fresh air and I can listen to the ceremony outside. And I was like, you know you, you know, well done. Whereas before, you know, something would have got thrown or screamed or it would have been a negative. It was such a positive way. And he also said to me, we went to this end of term picnic, which was really overstimulating and he struggles with change and end of term anyway. And he was having a dreadful time. And he said to me, I need, I need 
middle-class parenting. He's like, he, he really, he loves spicy food, which I've read about being a stimulant in sort of ADHD as well. And he was like, I need sushi because he loves soy sauce and can have it with like those sushi packs from the supermarket. He's like, I need sushi and I need chewing gum, which is part of his sensory profile, and I need a fiddly toy. And I said, okay, really well done for telling me what you need because you're having a hard time. And I've worked on this stuff with him for years, right? Um, and I said, right, we can go to the supermarket and we can get sushi and we can get chewing gum, but I don't think we can get a fiddly toy. And he was like, we can because they've got those machines by the tills with the one pound thing that you put in. And I was like, mate, you're absolutely right. Let's go get all three. And we got all three and we went back to the picnic. Like, it's so empowering. Like, so I spoke to her, I said, what about those bits? He said, oh yeah, like, you know, that is good. And I said, what about your, your you know, the fact that everyone says you're so friendly and outgoing and kind and funny and you know your energy you know you he did a 5k run with me and he you know everyone was so so like wow because he's very small for his age they were saying oh you know um i can't believe you can do a 5k run and he and he you know did and i was like it was oh my god maybe it's munchausen's by proxy i was like oh yeah superhero energy putting it on him you know but i had to remind him of all of the positive things i had to like I had to point out all of the good bits. And I genuinely believe his first answer, what he sees is that it feels fizzy all the time and he gets in trouble for that, you know? He does when he can't control it. And I think my words of wisdom are around all of us connecting the dots the way he has done as a young child and that everybody should be supported and empowered to do to be able to set themselves up to succeed because a lot of things, schools, hospitals, loads of places set children and adults up to fail still, I think, with ADHD. But I also think we've just got to be more trauma-informed about the reality of not being in control of all of your choices. You know, that like I constantly worry about rejection-sensitive dysphoria, you know, about his self-esteem. You know, there are still so many barriers to just being able to have a full life and enjoy things the way that everybody else gets to. And so, yeah, those, those were his words of wisdom. And that's me on my soapbox at the end of the podcast saying I think we all still need to do better I'm still learning how to do better as well I love it thank you so so much thank you I loved this conversation so much we only finished talking because we talked for nearly 90 minutes and I'm rubbish at editing so as soon as I can I promise I'll get Max back on to talk more about his ADHD journey and the incredible work he does professionally if you want to keep up with all the ADHD hyperactive living content, I will include the newsletter details in the show notes. And if you want to get in touch with me, if you want to appear on the podcast or you've got any questions for any of the guests, just let me know. My email is in the notes at the bottom as well. Have a great day.